The Orthodox Journey. In this edition of The Orthodox Journey, we reflect upon the Gospel reading for the 8th Sunday of Matthew and the miraculous feeding of 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. We'll be joined by Irene Psaromatis. We will also look ahead to the Feast of the Transfiguration of Our Lord with Yangos Kokinos. This is The Orthodox Journey. The Holy Gospel on the 8th Sunday of Matthew with Irene Psaromatis of the Greek Orthodox Ladies Group. The event we hear about in today's Gospel reading from Matthew chapter 14 verses 14 to 22 describes one of the most well-known miracles performed by Christ. It is an event mentioned in all four Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000, like all of Christ's miracles, serves as yet another revelation of Christ's divine power. In the face of something so completely impossible and illogical on human terms, that is, to feed well over 5,000 people with only five loaves of bread and two fish, somehow we are left with a very unexpected result, thousands of people satisfied and twelve baskets filled with leftovers. So how did such a great multitude of people find themselves in a deserted place far from any town and in need of provisions? In summary, Christ and his disciples had left the towns and gone by boat to a deserted place to be on their own. But the people, on hearing where Christ was to be found, immediately followed him on foot. They were drawn to his presence. And Jesus, on seeing the great multitude which had come out to see him and hear him, as the evangelist Matthew recounts, was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled and they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about five thousand men, besides women and children. We will now reflect on certain points which stand out from this miraculous event. To begin with, these people demonstrated a great desire to seek after Jesus. Families travelling by foot to wherever he was, even this deserted place, to hear his teaching, to find healing and remain in his presence. The people were so captivated by his words, so comforted, so that noon came, then the afternoon, 
then evening, and yet they remained there, hanging off his every word. If we focus our attention on what Christ does during this encounter with the multitudes, we can discern three main actions. First, he heals their bodily illnesses. Then he speaks. As the evangelist Mark recounts, he began to teach them many things. He nourishes their souls. Then he feeds the people, providing for their material needs. In all that he does for them, we see Christ's compassion for the people in action. We also see his ability as perfect man and perfect God to provide all that we are in need of, both spiritually and physically. God's providence for man, his care for us, is evident from the beginning of the creation. He formed man on the sixth day after everything else had been prepared, so that man, the crown of creation, could be the caretaker, cultivating and leading all the created world towards the Creator, towards a more perfect communion with God. The theme of God's providence in matters spiritual and material is something we find examples of throughout the Old and New Testament. From the time of the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, the forty years of wandering the desert before reaching the Promised Land, God provided the manna, food falling from the heavens to sustain his people. At Mount Sinai, he gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, to guide their behavior towards God and men, as a preparation to later accept Christ, the incarnate God. And later in the New Testament, during Christ's encounters with various individuals in his earthly ministry, his focus was on fulfilling not only the material needs, the bodily healing of the person, but first and foremost their spiritual needs, the strengthening of their faith, the healing of their soul. In the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, through his actions Christ shows us the order in which we are to prioritise the nourishment of soul and body. As people, we are neither all body neither all soul. We are both, and as such need to care for both, as the health of the one affects the health of the other. The body requires bread for its well-being, and yet, as we hear in Matthew chapter 4 verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Our soul, in order to have life, requires the bread of life. What, or rather, who, is this bread of life? Christ himself tells us in John chapter 6 verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. We are presented in today's gospel with an image of the Eucharist, Christ's blessing, breaking and sharing of the bread through the hands of the disciples to the people in the desert reminds us of the Eucharist which Christ, through his bishops and presbyters, distributes to the faithful. It is through our conscious participation in the Holy Eucharist that we partake most fully in the sustenance God provides for us. 
Now, if we turn our attention to the role of the disciples in today's Gospel reading, we will note that when Christ told them to feed the multitudes, they were perplexed, as we also would be in their situation. Christ, of course, in his divinity, knew what course of action he would follow. So why did he tell the disciples in the face of such a dilemma, you give them something to eat? Christ wanted to teach the disciples and us today that all of us, each person, must do whatever he can to fill those who hunger. There are many types of hunger to be discerned in the person of our 21st century Western society. Yes, there is the physical hunger, but there is also a great spiritual hunger to know the truth, the joy and freedom that is in Jesus Christ. Perhaps we realise this to some degree through our daily interactions with our colleagues, our neighbours, our friends and relatives. But perhaps we also feel at a loss as to how we can help. We feel insufficient. What can we say? What can we offer this person before us? Well, maybe Christ gives us the answer to this when in the evangelist Mark's account of this miracle, Christ asks the disciples, How many loaves do you have? In other words, Christ does not expect us to give more than what we can to those around us. But he encourages us, He who has much to offer much, he who has little to offer from the little he has. Saint Basil the Great, in a time of famine, addressed the poor, saying, You will say that you are poor. Without a doubt there is someone poorer than you. If you have a little, do not hesitate to give even from this. On this point, we are also reminded of the poor widow and her two mites, who gave the most out of her poverty. As St. Baisios advises, to give from whatever little we have is what has value, whether it is something spiritual or something material. When our offering to our fellow person involves sacrifice accompanied by love, this is true compassion in action. Christ shows us through this miracle that it is not enough to feel compassion for others, but we need to transform our compassion into action and to offer not only out of our excess, but out of our deficiency, whatever we have, and to do this without fear of being left in need ourselves, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let us not forget the words of the psalmist, Rich men turned poor and went hungry, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. It is no coincidence that these exact words are chanted triumphantly three times at the Artoclasia service, that is, the blessing of the loaves, which is directly related to the remembrance of this miracle. In response to Christ's exhortation, you give them something to eat, the disciples responded eagerly, offering just what they had, and God took care of the rest. Likewise, let us also, at every opportunity, do what we can, offer the little we have, with eagerness, and place our trust in Him, 
After all, as Apostle Paul emphasizes to the Christians in the book of Acts, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The Feast of the Transfiguration with Yangos Kokinos of the Greek Orthodox Christian Society. Most beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, this week we celebrate a truly great feast in the calendar of our Church, the Transfiguration of our Lord. This feast, we celebrate the revelation of a new reality. Through the Transfiguration, it was revealed that which had already come, a reality which began when Christ entered the womb of the Theotokos. But on this day, the mingling of the divine and human natures of Christ was revealed to mankind. We call it the Feast of the Transfiguration, but Christ did not change. It was not possible for Christ to change. Christ simply revealed to his disciples who he truly was, as much as they could bear, as we chant in the dismissal hymn of the feast. Let us also then go up this mountain where Christ was transfigured, so that we too might receive a taste of who Christ truly is. But before we can ascend Mount Tabor, it's important for us to first understand the state of the Apostles prior to this event. In all three of the Gospels, where the event of the Transfiguration is recorded, immediately prior to the Transfiguration, Christ says to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Imagine how much this saying would have troubled the disciples. They were following Christ as a great teacher. They would have been astounded by his miracles. His teachings would have resonated with them. Maybe they even expected that Christ would make them great also. But he Christ is telling them to deny themselves, to take up their cross, to lose their life. Surely they would have struggled as to why Christ wanted them to live such a difficult life. But as the three of them very soon found out, a life of the cross, a life of denying oneself, is one which brings paradise even in this life. That is why Christ then immediately says to them, Assuredly I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This very soon became a reality for three of the disciples. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So Christ takes three of his disciples and leads them up the mountain of Tabor. 
But why did he only take Peter, James and John? Peter, because he loved the Lord. John, since he was loved by the Lord. And James, because he was a man of integrity. He will not tell the other disciples what he saw. Why did Jesus not take up all of his disciples? Jesus knew that the three he selected would not have been scandalized. Others may have been scandalized after seeing Christ transfigured, recognizing his divinity, then 40 days later seeing him crucified. These three were not an elite group within the twelve disciples. Christ did not show bias towards them. Peter, James and John were the only ones that were ready to witness such an event at that particular point in time. We should also reflect that Christ took the the disciples up a mountain by themselves. This teaches us how we should pray. We need to have the time to pray alone, undistracted from the world. High up on a mountain means that our prayer needs to be free from worldly cares. Christ could have easily been transfigured in the city, but we see that he saw the beauty of stillness. Our prayer should also be as if we were up on a mountain, alone, just me and God. We should be able to stand before an icon in silence and feel God's presence, to talk to God, to love him and to form a relationship with him. Once Christ had taken up Peter, James and John up the mountain, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Christ reveals himself to the apostles. He reveals his divine and human nature. But as St. Gregory Palamas mentions, it is wrong to think that this light of the transfiguration goes and comes into being. In fact, this light is imperceptible to the human senses. It was the spiritual eyes of the apostles that opened that enabled them to see this light as much as the Holy Spirit granted them to do so. Only those with a pure heart are able to open their spiritual eyes to see such great wonders. As we said earlier, Christ did not change anything. The apostles merely got a taste of who Christ is. The light of the transfiguration that Christ manifested did not come into existence during this event, but was always present, only invisible to those around him. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Christ raised Moses from Hades and brought down Elijah from heaven. But a simple question that even children might ask is how did the apostles recognize the prophets? They did not have icons back then. The church fathers say that in paradise we will recognize and know everyone around us, even if we have never seen them before. This is exactly what the apostles experienced at the transfiguration. It was a taste of paradise. And why did Christ have Moses and Elijah present? Firstly, these were the greatest of the prophets. So it shows the disciples and the Jews that Christ in no way is overturning the law. His teachings are perfectly compatible with the Old Testament. And this is evident by having Moses, the giver of the law, present with him as well as Elijah, who was jealous for the glory of God. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
Many of the fathers criticized Peter for saying these words, that he was attempting to abandon his apostolic duties. The fathers also say that this was another way for Peter to try and prevent Christ from being killed by the Jews. He would have thought, We are up here on this isolated mountain. No one knows where we are. We have Moses with us, the lawgiver, so the Jews would say nothing to Jesus if they saw Moses here. And Elijah, who brought down fire onto the mountain, surely he would protect us. Even though Peter had already been rebuked by Jesus for having these ideas, it just shows the love Peter had for Christ. But let us also consider another meaning to this verse. Peter was so overwhelmed by this experience that he wanted to stay there forever. His eyes had been opened, and seeing a small glimpse of the glory of God, he didn't want it to end. It was such a beautiful experience for him. We too can have such experiences. The transfigured Lord is present in every divine liturgy, but our eyes are closed and we do not see his true glory. If only we could ascend the mountain, leaving everything worldly behind, and truly participate in the banquet that Christ has prepared for us. If this is the case, then when we experience the beauty of this place, we have no other option than to say, Lord, it is good for us to be here. It is as if we are saying, This is what I want for my life. This is what I choose for my life. I want to live here now in this life. I don't want to wait till I die before I can live in this beautiful place. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Why did God the Father say these words? to show the apostles that even though they were about to see Christ crucified, to know that he is still God, that he is loved by the Father. In whom I am well pleased shows that the Father sees Christ as being equally perfect with him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Let us finally reflect on what the transfiguration means for us. Elder Milianos of Simonopetra Monastery says that our entire lives should be a tabor. As we said, one may criticize the apostles for wanting to abandon their apostolic duties to build tents and stay on Tabor. But it is this very longing that is at the core of our existence, a longing to be with Christ in this life and in the life to come, a longing to experience Christ even from now. No one immerses themselves in orthodoxy for any other reason, otherwise it would simply be an ideology with no benefit whatsoever. The hope of man to return to his original beauty is intertwined with his very longing to participate in this light of Christ, to experience and participate in the energies of God, as St. Gregory Palamas says. 
Christ has called us to ascend the mountain with him. But we ultimately need to decide if we want to follow him or not. We must decide if we want to stay at the level that we are at, to stay where we are comfortable, to remain conformed to the world. Or will we leave these behind? Will we renew our mind and be transformed as Christ was? Will we follow Christ up the mountain and leave everything behind, everything that keeps us grounded? When we say no to this world and ascend the mountain together with Christ, then we begin to participate in His glory. Then we can experience the kingdom from this life. Otherwise, if we stay at sea level, then we remain blind to the fact that Christ is in our midst. We fail to see God's presence in our lives. We cannot see the wonders that surround us on a daily basis. Only when we remove our attachments to the world, when we purify our hearts, do we begin to experience the gifts that God has given us as they truly are. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of The Orthodox Journey. To keep up to date with our podcast, subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or head to orthodoxjourney.com where you can find even more Orthodox articles, talks, sermons and podcasts. <laughs> 